Morning, brothers and sisters. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We're in Ephesians 4, and last week we talked about the importance of our identity in Christ. It is really, really important for us to understand who we are. It's important to know who we were, children of wrath, before God, sinful, rebellious, and now we have been changed and we have become children of God. That is so important. Identity is critical. When I was in high school, I was a proud Everman Bulldog. Now that doesn't mean much to you, but it's really important. And I was part of a basketball team in which we had a legacy. We were known for tough-nosed defense. We pressed full court the entire ball game. We were in great shape. We never gave up, and we played as a team. And my coach built this legacy, starting with kids even coming up in seventh and eighth grade, learning this great legacy of being an Everman Bulldog. It wasn't about us. It wasn't just about us winning. It was about maintaining the legacy of Everman Bulldog basketball. And what happened was you played differently than if you were just playing a game for yourself because of who you were. And we had this incredible introduction where they had all the lights go out and they had these spotlights come on and we had this purple carpet roll out on the court and we all came out on the court in our uniforms and we did the thing. But legacy is important. If you don't think legacy is important, think about the American legacy. This country was established by men and women who desired to create a nation whose God was the Lord. And they built the laws of this land upon the scriptures. And they expected this country to be governed by people who feared God. And it wasn't all about getting the best for you here in this country. It was about living with a view to God in your heart and living a life in righteousness before him. That legacy has been hijacked. America is now about whatever you want it to be. And you can pursue whatever desire you want to pursue in America. It doesn't matter what it is or who you are or what you're involved in. You have a right to do whatever you want to do. The history books in secular education, both in public and higher education, have been scrubbed clean of all the remnants of the Christian legacy that was part of this country. Do you think that makes a difference in how people live? You better believe it does. As you understand your identity, it affects the way you live. And we're watching in our country, the country coming apart at the seams as everyone is after whatever is best for them. They don't understand the legacy that they have received. The legacy has been lost. And that's on purpose from people who know that for this country to be changed, we have to lose sight of the legacy of what built this country. Paul understands that in Ephesians 4. He understands that for you to live like Christ you have to first understand that you're a new creation in Christ. You have to understand that. That's what we covered in verses um, 17 through 24 last week. He tells us in verse 1 of chapter 4 that we are to live and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. There is no higher calling than to be a Christian. There's no higher calling to then belong to Christ, to be a new creation in Christ. This will change who we are. And it's not just semantics. It's not just, oh, I believe this, therefore it's true. No, it's true. 
because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives and you've been changed and now believe it and in our passage today, live it. Live it out. That is the call that we have here today. Our new identity in Christ will dramatically change the way we live our lives. Three general observations before we get into this passage. One, Paul's exhortations are relational in nature. In order to build a kingdom community, we must change the way we treat people. And that's what this passage is going to deal with. He talks about in the first part of chapter 4 that we are one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. He say we're one. And now in this passage, he's going to tell us how to live as one. Very, very clear admonitions, which he believes we can carry out through the word and through the power of the spirit of God who lives in us. He's not asking us to do the impossible. Will it be done perfectly? We've talked about that before. And the answer is what? The answer is what? No, it won't be done perfectly. But it will be done in a way that brings him pleasure as we are guided by his spirit. Secondly, notice here that holiness is not just saying no to sin. It is also obeying what God has called you to do. We must replace wrong living with biblical living. It's not just ceasing false talk or corrupt speech or ceasing anger or ceasing bitterness. There's something else that has to happen or ceasing stealing. It's not just stop. There's more to it than that. And third, I want you to notice that there's always a theological reason for why we should live differently. There's a real push sometimes in the public schools to have students learn to do what's right. But we never tell them why. We never connect them back to the living God. I promise you, living honestly doesn't make sense to somebody when they know they can make more money being dishonest than being honest. What's the rationale for being honest? Well, it's going to be good for you, really. I can make more money being dishonest than honest. It has to be connected back to who? God. It comes back from, to his character. So we're going to look at five things that Paul admonishes the Ephesian believers to do. And then we're going to be done. Okay? Number one, we're going to replace false talk with speaking truth with our neighbor. Verse, verse 25 of chapter 4. In Zechariah 8, 16, we're told, speak truth to one another. Part of being God's children, part of being a new creation, is we stop speaking what's false, and we start speaking what's true. Because we are members of one another, this is the reason for it. Notice what he says here. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, verse 25, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. We are part of one body. Therefore, we are to speak truth to each other to build up the body of Christ. Our words greatly affect the body of believers. What you say to your family, what you say to yourself, what you say to each other has a dramatic effect upon the health of the body. Since we are united together, false words hurt the whole body. Falsehood stifles unity. Truth strengthens unity. We are to be gathered around truth. And he's already emphasized truth in verse 15, where we read of chapter 4, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We see it again in verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 24, and, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness 
and holiness. He says, as new creations, you're to put off false talk. You're to speak truth to yourself, to your family, to your church. And sometimes that truth can be painful. If someone's in sin, you have to tell them they're in sin. We have to speak truth to each other. Truth is representative of our king. Jesus is the way and the what? Truth and the life. Satan is the father of lies. And he, when he lies, Jesus said, he speaks his native language. He is a liar. And all of his followers have the same character trait. They lie as well. Therefore, Paul's admonition is stop lying. Stop speaking false things. Speak what is true. The question we have to ask ourselves is who are you imitating by your speech? Are you imitating King Jesus? Or are we imitating Satan by what we say? So we're to replace false false speaking with the truth. How do we speak the truth? Well, first we have to learn the truth from God's word. A lot of us speak stuff that we think is true, but it's not because it's not from the word of God. We need to know the word to be able to speak the word of God. We can't just say things out of our natural inclinations because we've been trained for years and years and years in the kingdom of darkness. We have to change the way we understand truth and be able to speak it that way. Also, we must have God's love in our heart to speak his truth to each other. Sometimes speaking the truth is hard. It's, it's difficult to speak the truth. It's easier just to let it go and move on. But if you love somebody, you'll speak the truth to them. Parents, you know what that's like, don't you? There's things you have to tell your children that they don't want to hear. And it's not going to be a pleasant conversation. But you know you love them and they need to hear the truth. We are a community. False talk will destroy a business. It'll destroy a sports team. It'll destroy a church. It'll destroy a nation. We, as brothers and sisters, have to be careful to speak the truth. That's very important. And we need, as we look at our lives, when we find ourselves speaking things that aren't true, we need to stop, we need to repent, and we need to speak what's true. And if we've said something to somebody that's not true, we need to go back to them and apologize and correct what we've said that's wrong. Speaking truth is very important to God. And it's important for you because you're now his new creation. Secondly, we need to replace unrighteous anger with righteous anger. Verse 26. Verse 26 we read, Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity for the devil. Now, when you read that verse, and then you come down here to the end, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So in the first verses, he's saying you can be angry, but don't what? Sin. In the second set of verses, he tells us to put, it, put anger away. How do we reconcile these two passages? I think we have to understand there's two kinds of anger. There is unrighteous anger. We see this in Ephesians 4, I mean James 4, where he says, why do you, why do you have quarrels and fights among you? You desire something, but you don't what? Get it. We all can get angry when we don't get our way. Right? When I have a plan on what should happen and it doesn't happen, I can be angry. That is unrighteous anger. That needs to be put away. 
well, sister so-and-so said something about me, and I'm just really upset about that. Well, was it sin? No. Okay, that's unrighteous. Did she say something that was sin against you? Yes. Then there's another, then I need to do something else. When somebody sins against you, is it right to be angry or not? We have been taught in the broader Christian circle that we're not to be angry and that it's sin to be angry. May I suggest to you that anytime someone sins either against you, against someone you love, against somebody in the body, if they sin against you, there should be within you a righteous what? Anger. What do you think Matthew 18 is about? Matthew 18 says if someone has sinned against you, do what? Go to them. He doesn't say, don't be angry and make sure you forgive them right away. No, he says what? Go to them and confront them in that. And hopefully, if they sin, they will repent and they'll be good. Because the problem is when somebody sins against me, someone's in danger, aren't they? When someone sins, they're in danger because sin is deadly, isn't it? And our answer to sin is not to overlook it or move away from it. It's to confront it in love so that the person can be set free and to walk in what? Righteousness. So we have unrighteous anger. We have righteous anger. Psalm 4.4, David says, be angry and do not sin. Someone said it's, it's when you get mad but you don't cuss. That's not really the essence of what he's saying here. Righteous anger is holy anger against sin. Can Christians have that? We should. We should have that. We should be angry at whose sin first? Ours, shouldn't we? When we do things that are sinful and we hurt other people, we should be angry at our own sin. And we should mourn and we should repent and we should provide reconciliation of whatever needs to be done to make that happen. If we see somebody else sitting against somebody else, we should be angry. Part of the problem in our country is that Christians aren't angry over sin. We've been taught that that's sin to be angry. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says be angry and what? Do not sin. Anger is a good thing because it moves us to do what? Take action. Now we can go overboard and in the middle of it sin, can't we? But anger causes something within us that makes us want to do what? Take action. Are there some things in our country that we need to take action about? Absolutely. Absolutely. We should be absolutely outraged that little babies in the womb are not protected and have no, as one candidate said, have no constitutional rights. We do understand that Roe v. Wade took away the constitutional rights of every unborn child. Correct? Do we have righteous anger toward that? We should. And yet, that means dealing with it, confronting it. At the same time, there have been women who have had an abortion. And we need to come and say that's wrong, but there is what? There is grace from God. There is forgiveness. And your life can be put back on track. Yes, what you did was wrong. Yes, it was murder. But God has the grace to forgive murder and to set women free from a choice they made that was, was awful. The problem in the Christian community is we're not that angry about sin. We're not that angry about sin in our own lives. 
We're not that angry about sin in our own churches. Matter of fact, when you start as a leadership trying to get to deal with sin in the church, it gets ugly in a hurry. Because all some churches want is a nice little message and to feel good and don't deal with our sin. When we deal with sin, people will get angry. One person stated this, one of the problems in our country is that Christians feel guilty for being angry against sin. If we are indifferent to injustice, then evil will prevail. And that's what we see. We should hate sin like God hates sin. That would make sense, wouldn't it? If we had been taken as an enemy of God and made his friend, and he hates sin, then we should do what? Hate sin. Our own sin and others' sin. And to look and to take action, not just hate it, but what? Take action that's appropriate to resolve the situation. In Psalm 119, 53, David says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. David was incensed by people who forsook God's law. That's King David. Was he just having a temper tantrum? No. That was righteous anger. Let's look at Jesus, Mark 3, 5. Remember, he's in the, he's in the synagogue and he's teaching and he's asked the the religious leaders, is it okay to take this man who has a shriveled hand and heal him on the Sabbath? And he looked at them. And look what the scripture says. And he looked around at them with what? Anger. Jesus, don't you know you're not supposed to be angry? That's one of the rules, isn't it? You're supposed to be angry? Grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and the hand was restored. And if you remember, they went off to themselves and planned how to do what? Kill him. They're over here nitpicking about having a shriveled hand healed on the Sabbath and they're planning on the other hand to have him killed. Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of Israel. He lays down woe after woe after woe and condemnation of their sin. Let's turn to Revelation 19. Jesus came to save sinners. That was his first mission. He's come to do that. He laid out the sacrifice for that. He appointed men to go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel and tell everyone to repent of your sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ. That was his call. That's our call. Repent and turn to Christ. And he is going to be very gracious and long-suffering. As he watches all that goes on here, he is very gracious and long-suffering in people's sin. But there will come a day when he will come back. And he will deal in wrath with those who are in rebellion against him for all generations. Revelation 19, 11, and then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and is righteousness he makes, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a day that will be. What a day that will be that we will see. 
What a glorious day that will be. But this long-suffering God will pour out his wrath on the sinfulness of mankind. Unrighteous anger leads to murder, jealousy, envy, and a host of other sins. And we see it almost daily in our news of people being killed for all kinds of ridiculous reasons because of unrighteous anger. Let's look at how we keep our anger righteous. To keep our anger righteous, a couple of things here under this point. Number two, I'm replacing unrighteous anger with righteous anger. One, if you're angry and it's not because of sin, then your anger is unrighteous. If somebody did something to you and misput you and it's not sin and you're mad about it, that's unrighteous anger. The first question you have to ask is, have I been sinned against? Or in this situation, was there any sin that went on? It has to be, righteous anger has to be what? Against sin. Number two, don't let sin, do not sin in your anger. So just because you have righteous anger towards something, if you're not careful, you can respond in a way that makes it unrighteous because you end up sinning while you're trying to deal with something that was done that was wrong. I mean, a church can find a brother in sin living with somebody they shouldn't be living with, and they can begin the process of dealing with them in discipline, and they can do things in that process that ends up, even though it's a righteous movement to deal with that sin, those trying to do it can do what? Sin, can't they? How many of us parents have done that in the discipline of our children? Where they do, they didn't, did they need a spanking? They sure did. Were they in sin? They sure were. And were you in sin for us over with? Yes, I sure was. So we have to, again, in our, in our anger and trying to deal with it, we need to make sure we stay within what God has called us to do and what's right. If you'll notice in Matthew 18, he says with someone, Matthew 18, 15, Notice he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. How do you, do, how do you handle anger? You deal with it biblically. If someone has sinned, go to them. Somebody comes to you and they've been hurt by another brother. What should you tell them? Go to that brother and confront them. And did they sin against you? Yes. Then go to them and confront them. There are biblical channels for how to do this. Three, don't let the sun go down on your anger. What, the, what does this mean? Anger, even if it's righteous anger, needs to be brought to an end at some point. There needs to be a place where it gets taken care of. Sometimes what happens is somebody does something to us, we get angry, and we, we don't take any steps to deal with it, and then it just begins to fester. And then we start doing things we shouldn't do as a result of that. And he says, four, don't give the devil an opportunity. Our anger, righteous or unrighteous, gives the devil what? An opportunity to step in and do something. One pastor said, be angry enough so that you don't passively acquiesce to sin, but don't allow your anger to boil over into sinful vengeance or excessive reaction. First of all, we must hate and be angry at sin in ourselves. We must take the log out of our own eye first. But also we must be angry at the sin and injustice that we see in the world. But in our, own, our own, in our own righteous anger, we must be careful lest we fall into sin. What does he tell us in Galatians 6? If you see a brother in sin, deal with him. But he says, what? but watch yourselves. Let's look at that right quick. Galatians 6. He says, brothers, if one is, this is verse 1 of chapter 6 of Galatians. Brothers, if one is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Be careful in helping restore others 
So what does this mean for us? So if you hear of a man who's ruining his family because of sexual sin or because of sinful anger, you should get angry and you should do something about that. If you hear of someone who is dividing a local church over petty issues or by spreading gossip, anger is a, a, pro, a proper response and you should confront that brother. If you hear of a little child who's being mistreated, it should anger you. We have, a, we have a man who's in the military right now who has been released from his duties because while he was over in Iraq, there were some Iraqi generals who were abusing young boys and he overheard it, he stepped in and he took decisive action. And our military did what? They released him from his duty. That was an appropriate response to wickedness. That's what we're talking about here. Anger is the proper response in, in each situation because it's God's response. Apathy towards sin is not godly. Apathy towards sin is not godly. Next, number three, we're replacing stealing with working and giving. Verse 28. Verse 28, he said, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice the command doesn't just say stop stealing. Stealing was typical in the first century Asia Minor. Day laborers and skilled tradesmen who worked on a seasonal basis would oftentimes steal when they didn't have work to do. Paul's admonitions are strong in this area. The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. God created us for work. Jesus worked as a carpenter till his earthly ministry began. And Paul supported himself with his tent-making ministry. The admonition of Paul is clear here in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If a man will not work, he shall not what? Eat. What is wrong with stealing? Well, we, the obvious thing that's wrong is somebody took something from me that sh should have been mine or took something from somebody else that was theirs. But the sin started when the brother was not what? Working. And notice he was not working enough to take care of himself. Notice what the admonition is. It says replace stealing with what? Replace stealing with work and working enough so that you also have something to do what? To share. What would happen to people who stole, if they just didn't get thrown in, in jail, but they had to actually work to repay what they stole, and then work enough to where they had enough to share with somebody else? Would that not be redemptive and restorative in their lives? The Bible's clear. There's a need for honest work. We are created for work. If anyone's not willing to work, he shall not eat. Proverbs 28 19 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have the plenty of poverty. Paul even warns some Christians in the letters that they're spending time being busybodies. Let's look at the 2 Thessalonians 3 passage quickly. Notice what he says. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not, not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is one of the tragedies of socialism that America has adopted. Not only does it take money from people who are working, it, it basically pays people not to work. 
Therefore, we pay people to disobey God and not work. Do you think that affects people? It sure does. It's crippling to them. And more and more, a percentage of our population are not working and are being subsidized and paid by the government for that. It is a tragedy, and it is a pit that becomes very, very difficult to get out of. Paul is saying in this passage, brothers, among the body of Christ, there shouldn't be some of you who don't work and just wait for somebody else to meet their needs. You need to all be working and work to the point you have enough to do what? Not only meet your own needs, but what? Share with others. In the early founding of this country, they started off with a very socialistic system. Okay, we're all just going to kind of work the same land. We're all going to kind of share in how much we all get. Well, what happened is more people realized, hey, you know what? I don't have to work and I get paid for it. Before long, nobody was working. They almost starved to death. For a body of believers, we need to be industrious. We need to not steal from each other, but we need to work because work is honorable to the Lord. And we should work to the point we have something else to give. That also says this, everything you work for doesn't just go to you. Well, I worked for it. Yes, you did. But God provided you with the ability to do that. And you have a responsibility, not only to your own household, but to help others as well in time of need. Because people do have need. There are people who are poor. There are people among us who need help. But people should be working. Everyone should find some type of work to provide for their needs. John Wesley said, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, and then give as much as you can away. That's a pretty good formula. Work hard. That's good for us. Make as much as you can. Why? So you can spend it all on yourself? No. No so that you can also have it to give to those in need. And guess who we imitate when we work and when we give? We imitate God. God works. And God does what? Gives. Abundantly. Number four. We need to replace corrupting talk with edifying speech. Verse 29 Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The word he uses for corrupt here is the word that means rotten or putrid or filthy. And we've been around people, haven't we? Where it is a literal gutter as they open their mouth and speak. I'm amazed at the corruptness of the speech. We like to go out and play frisbee golf from time to time. It's amazing what is said out on the little course. And you'll talk to somebody, and it's like they use this word as if it's a, it's a comma. And it's just put in there all the time. You're like, wow, do you have another word besides that you could use? Is it possible that we have a different word? You know, it, it refers to rotten fruit or rotten fish. Now, I know something about rotten fish. Back in 2009, we had a hurricane come through Houston, Hurricane Ike. And I was in the process of, of contributing to a book called uh, Perspectives on Family Ministry, Three Views that Southern Seminary was putting out for their students. And I knew there's a good chance of being out of power, so I actually drove up here with my family to Fredericksburg and stayed with Lori's family for two weeks and working on that book and, and avoided the, the mess that was in Houston trying to get through this hurricane. The power was out in my house for two weeks. Um, and we, um, we sent somebody into the house um, to get everything out of the house. And the problem was it was in the evening and it was dark. And so they were in the house cleaning out everything out of the fridge. And they thought they got everything out of the fridge. And uh, we came home in two weeks and we opened the front door. Just about got knocked down. 
rotten fish. There was a bag of frozen catfish that we had caught. It had been sitting there for two weeks with no refrigeration in a warm house. Talk about nasty. Talk about taking days to get the smell out of the house and out of the fridge. That's what he uses to describe corrupt speech. Corrupt talk makes you sick. And it comes from a corrupt heart. We're new creations. That kind of stuff shouldn't continue to come out of us. What are some examples of corrupt talk? Lying, abusive language. Some of us have grown up in homes where our parents abused us constantly. You're no good, you'll never matter, you'll never match up to anything. You're horrible, la 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 la. That type of abusive language has no place in the Christian community. Vulgar references, vicious and unkind words, gossip, slander, backbiting each other, all that fits in this category of corrupt language. Matthew 12, 36 tells us this. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Is it important what we say? It really is. It really, really is. And there's times when we just let our our mouth go, and we say what we feel, and we don't put the filter of the word of God over it. We need to repent of that. Augustine said, whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. Wouldn't that be a nice thing to have over our kitchen table? Our speech should be building up the community of Christ and actually be a source of grace in the lives of fellow members. Notice what it says here, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you realize that your words can give grace to people? Grace is what we need to live for Christ. Encouraging biblical exhortations give people energy to live for Christ. In the community, God visualizes there's lots of biblical exhortation and encouragement. Yes, there may be an admonition, there may be a correction, but it's all for the purpose of what? Building up. Corrupt talk does nothing but tear down. Encouraging, exhorting biblical words, whether they're you know, sometimes they may be a rebuke, but that can build us up, can't it? To be taken off a wrong path and put on the right path is a good thing, right? How's our speech? Replace our corrupt talk with what? Words that do what? Build up. Notice here in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All of these things we just talked about. And again, this is, this is not the exhaustive list, is it? Oh, thank you, Paul. All I have to do is five things and I'm good with Jesus. No, this is not, this is not an exhaustive list. Sorry to break that news to us. But this probably was dealing with some of the sins the church was dealing with in that situation. But notice, all of these sins do what? They grieve the Spirit of God. Who What? who drew you to Jesus, who's, and who sealed you for salvation. Why do we need to p- replace this and put on the righteousness? Because it grieves God. It grieves him. And it tears down his body. And finally, number five, Replace all bitterness, wrath, and anger, clamor, and slander, and malice with kindness, tenderness, and biblical forgiveness as Christ forgave you. I could spend a whole sermon on this last one in dealing with biblical forgiveness. I will not be able to really deal with that much in this situation. We're to replace those things 
with the character of Jesus Christ as we behold him. As we behold Jesus' kindness toward us, his tenderheartedness toward us, and his forgiveness of us, we should mirror that to the community. Are we going to sin against each other? Yes, we are. I wish we could say that FCF is a church that's never, there's been no sin at all between brothers and sisters in the church. If that's the case, there's no need for this admonition, is there? There's no reason to be kind or tenderhearted or extend forgiveness because we're all perfect, right? We're not. And we do sin against each other. And that's why we're to be kind and tender with other people as they come to us or as we go to them to deal with sin, knowing that we were forgiven by who? Christ. We were forgiven by him. Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works we had done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 145, 8 and 9, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to um, abound. He's poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. God is very gracious to us. Therefore, we should be gracious to each other. This is very necessary in the body of Christ. We've had people go out from us because there was hurt and it was not resolved. It's really important that we deal with each other's sins and that we do it in a way that's biblical. The challenge in the American church is that a lot of times we don't deal with sin biblically. And we're so quick to be afraid of getting bitter that we don't ever deal with somebody else's sin and have them go through a biblical process to be restored. And so what we do is we just kind of patch stuff over and we'll say, you're forgiven. But, but the person's never really seen their sin. They've never really made reconciliation for the sin. And so we just patch it over. So when I was trying out with the Phoenix Suns, I was running in the country trying to get in condition for the tryout camp with the Phoenix Suns. And, and I was running along the road and a car was coming by, so I ran off into the ditch. And when I did, I felt this stabbing pain go through my foot. And what had happened, the neighbor had been mowing his ditch and there were Coke bottles there. And he had, he had, he had cut some of those up and they were just kind of sticking up like this. And it went right into my foot, right through my shoe, and it went into my, it went into my foot. And I look down, and I'm seeing red, and that doesn't make me feel real good. And I'm still a quarter of a mile from the house, and I have to hop all the way back to the house on one foot. And I get there, and it's deep. And, and I got it, pro- and so as long as I prop it up, it doesn't feel too bad. But you can kind of feel your heart beating. That's not a good thing, you know. And I have it propped up. And the last thing I want to do is go to the doctor. I don't want to go to the emergency room. I don't want them digging around in there. And I'm just hoping this is all going to be good. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep it that way. So I kept it there for hours. But every time I brought it down, it started throbbing. And I couldn't put my foot up on the ground without it hurting really bad. So I ended up having to go to the emergency room. And they got in there and he goes, well, looky here what I found in here. And he's over here digging around. He pulls out a big shard of glass. I was just happy to have that thing covered up. Just leave it there, just put a Band-Aid on it, and we're all good to go, right? That wouldn't have healed well, would it? Sometimes when a brother or sister sins against us, we're very quick to, even them not even acknowledge they've sinned against us, we're very quick to just offer forgiveness and move on. Instead of doing what the Bible says in Matthew 18, going to them and pointing out that to them. And dealing with it and then going, wow, I really, I didn't realize I did that. I'm really sorry. Would you please forgive me? And what do I need to do to make this right? 
and really bringing restoration. A lot of times in the church, it's just kind of slapped over. We kind of, kind of put a Band-Aid on it and we keep moving. The problem is, though, when you do that and you don't do biblical reconciliation, that thing shows up again. And it pops up again. And it pops up again. There's a whole lot more to talk about in this whole area of forgiveness that I don't have time to do today. Um, but these admonitions are great, aren't they? One, replace false talk with the truth because of who we are in Jesus. Number two, replace unrighteous anger with righteous anger. Three, replace stealing with working and giving. Four, replace corrupting talk with edifying encouragement and speech. And finally, five, replace bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice, which comes from unresolved conflict that's not been dealt with, with kindness and tenderness and biblical forgiveness. That makes for a healthy church. Let's pray, and then Cody will come up to do the Lord's table. Father, we come before you. Thank you that we are new creations in Christ. Thank you that these admonitions can be fulfilled in us because of your spirit who lives in us. Father, I pray that you'd help us to take seriously these admonitions and to replace the old man with the new. Father, we thank you for the progress you've already made. We pray that you would continue that, that this, that this body would be healthy and strong and reflecting more and more and more the image of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.